Please turn in your Bibles to the book of Ephesians as we continue in this study. I'm going to be reading um, verse 7 down through the end of the chapter. Would you please stand for the reading of God's Word this morning? Let's hear the Word of the Lord. In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of His grace, which He lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of His will, according to His purpose which He set forth in Christ, as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in Him, things in heaven, and things on earth. In Him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of Him, who works all things according to the counsel of His will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of His glory. In you, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in Him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of His glory. For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I have not ceased to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom, the revelation of the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his great might. That he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places. Far above all rule and authority and power and dominion. And above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. The grass withers the flower fades, but the word of our God abides forever. Please be seated. I ask you to go to prayer and pray for me as I preach this text. And pray for yourselves as you sit under the proclamation of our God's word. Let's pray. Our God and Heavenly Father, we pray that your spirit would be with us. We pray, O oh God, that you would bless this word to preach to the good of your people, to the glory of Christ. I ask you to help me, O oh God, as I preach. I depend upon you completely. So help me, Lord, by your grace to be proclaiming faithfully the scriptures. Give me unction of your spirit. And bless, O oh Lord, that when we leave here, we will be able to say it was good to be in the house of the Lord. So use this for our sanctification. In Christ's name, amen. <clears throat> what, in your opinion indicates that a church is healthy. Is it that a building that's been constructed that's huge, is that necessarily a sign of a healthy church? Nothing wrong with a big building. But there is a big building here in town. It's the largest church in North America, North Church in the United States, and it's full of people, but most often empty of the gospel. So numbers not necessarily a way to tell if the church is healthy or not. Well, what about uh, if these uh, programs that churches have, such as children's programs, youth programs, did that make for a healthy church? They're good assets. They're good things to have. It's good to have those ministries, but that does not necessarily indicate the church is healthy or faithful. 
Paul lays it out here in these words as he addresses these Christians from Ephesus. And he tells them here in this section what really makes a healthy church. Paul the Apostle, writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, rejoices over these Christians and he prays for them. What is it about the church in Ephesus that caused Paul to rejoice over them and to pray for them? Two things. The first one is they had faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what he says up to verse 15. Uh, for this reason, because I've heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus. This means they have an active faith. This means that they are engaged in living out their Christian life faithfully through belief in the gospel and belief in being obedient to the Lord Jesus Christ. And the second thing he says here is they have a genuine love for one another. I've said before, it's amazing how again and again and again in the Bible, love is so important in the life of the church and that God's people sincerely love one another. What does it say in First John? They will tell we are Christians by our love. So a sincere faith in Christ is in love for the brothers, those in the church, and actively involved in service to minister to them. So because of their conduct, because of their faithfulness, Paul prays for them. He doesn't pray for them to get well, per se. He doesn't pray for them to... Increase in numbers, per se. He prays for them to grow in grace, to grow in the knowledge of the Lord. And this is a uh, first it is Thanksgiving. The second is he prays three petitions for them. He prays that God may grant them a spirit of wisdom and revelation, knowing more of God, knowing more of who he is and what he's like. He prays that they may have a proper appreciation for the future blessings that they are going to receive. And here it is. There's such a motivation for us as believers if we are convinced that the day is going to come when you receive from the Lord that which is your inheritance that God has prepared especially for you. What a motivation it is for us to be faithful. And the third thing is that he prays for a proper understanding of what they have already experienced in their conversion, the good things that we have already in Christ. We are not free from suffering. We are not free from hurting We are guaranteed to have a future inheritance that is ours in Christ, and we have God's presence with us here now, today, day in and day out. So, because of the limitless power of God displayed in his work of redemption, as believers, we should have confidence in God's ability to work and accomplish what he intends to accomplish. Have you ever had a time in your life, perhaps when God said no to you at a request that you made, and it seems like he's not listening, and it seems like he's not being faithful in whatever the sins that we may have that come into our head and seek to influence us in such a way that we would doubt God's goodness. Well, he is not lacking in power by any means. That's one thing that Paul points out in these verses. Three things this morning. The power of God displayed in sanctification. The power of God displayed in redemption and the power of God displayed in the exaltation of the Lord in Jesus Christ. The first thing, then, the power of God displayed in sanctification. Listen to this. Growth in holiness is a normal part of the Christian's experience. It is a necessary part of the Christian's experience. Sanctification is something that must be taken place in the life of every believer to one degree or another. What is sanctification according to the little catechism Question 35, the answer is this. Sanctification is the work of God's free grace, whereby we are renewed in the whole man after the image of God 
and are enabled more and more to die into sin and to live unto righteousness. Sanctification is a work that God does where we become more and more like the Lord Jesus Christ. We are engaged in, actively engaged in, an attempt to grow. And we take advantage of opportunities, whatever they may be, to see to it that we are making progress spiritually. We want to make sure that we are not so tied up in the world that the glories of heaven become dim to us. We want to make sure that we are seeking God's face by going to worship, spending time in prayer, by reading and studying the Word of God, and by an act of repentance that goes on day in and day out. We want to take advantage of opportunities. And if you examine your life and you see no progress really in sanctification, you see no real improvement in your relationship with the Lord, and you don't really have any interest in that, you're probably not converted, I would say. Because as a believer, one thing that we want to do is to be like the Lord Jesus Christ. And we understand this, that all progress we make as we seek to be sanctified before God, as we seek to be holy before the Lord, all progress that we make is owing to our God. Unless the Lord builds a house, those who labor, labor in vain. And so we are totally dependent upon God for our spiritual well-being. We are totally dependent upon God for our, spirit, for our physical well-being as well. Our lives are completely in his hands. In him we live and we move and we have our being. To quote the Apostle Paul, quoting the Greek poets. Paul understood the absolute necessity and dependence upon the spirit for growth in Christianity. Therefore, he prays for God to grant these to the Christians. These people at Ephesus, God grant these things to you. It's amazing to me. How many times do we in the church pray for one another to grow in grace, to grow in love for Christ, to grow in love for one another, to more, more come to understand the things of God? So often our prayers, and this is understandable, we pray for things. We pray for this. We pray for that. We pray, Lord, give me this. Lord, take this away. We seldom do we pray, Lord, grant grace to your people. Grant that they may become more like the Lord Jesus Christ. Grant that they may have a desire to be more like Jesus. Grant that to them. As the officers pray for their shepherd group, Lord, grant that to them. As we pray for one another, Lord, grant grace to them to grow in the knowledge of Christ. Those people in our congregation who have over the years suffered physically with no small illness, we pray for their healing as proper we should also pray for God to use that in their life to become more like Christ let me ask you this question have you reached a point in your Christian life where you feel like you have to, uh, you're enough like Jesus I'm content I'm on the plateau and I'm happy and therefore I don't need to try too much anymore. I mean, after all, I've been a believer for 30, 40 years, whatever the case may happen to be. I see all kind of maturity in my life, all kind of growth in my life. Therefore, I'm going to sit back and kind of coast along. That's not the words of a Christian. That's not the words of somebody trying to be like the Lord Jesus Christ. So we would pray for one another's growth and grace and the understanding that a man can discern no sacred thing by himself apart from Christ, we need the Lord and we need his grace. With sanctification comes a greater understanding of the things of God, the things that God has in mind for us. Paul prays this for these Christians here. Uh, there are many ways that God has exhibited his power. Paul talks about that here. How did these things come to pass? How did people come to faith? 
How did people grow in the knowledge of Jesus? It's by the power of God. Is your God weak and ineffective? Or do you see him as the God who created all things? The God who sustains all things? The God who brings the stars out and names them by name? The God who will one day bring the end to things as they are to usher in the consummation of the ages and the glorification of his people. So our God is a God who would have us to be more like Christ, and we need to give ourselves effort in trying to be more like Jesus. The second thing is the power of God displayed in redemption. There are many ways in the Bible where God's power is clearly seen, is there not? You have the creation. David understood how the creation demonstrated the power of God, as he says in Psalm 19, the heavens declare the glory of God. The firmament shows his handiwork. So here David has the conviction that all that is was made by God and demonstrates and evidences his glory, his strength, his power, his wisdom. Creation is not a mass of chaos. The creation is a mass of order, not chaos. And so David can say, the heavens declare the glory of God. The firmament shows his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. Do you see that when you look in the evening sky or the morning that God did this? Not only did he do it, he sustains it. Christ, all things were made through Jesus. We read in the scriptures. And there will be glory in God because of his greatness and what he has done. So we see God's power in the creation. We also see God's power in the miracles. This God divided the Red Sea so that his people could cross over on dry land. God caused the sun to reverse. And there had to be, I would think, that the earth rotated the opposite direction on its axis. You said, that's impossible. No, it's not. Not with God at the helm, it's not impossible. Was it said in the scripture, nothing is impossible for God. I'll read it to you. Second Kings chapter 20, verses 8 through 11. Hezekiah said to Isaiah, What shall be the sign that the Lord will heal me, that I shall go up to the house of the Lord on the third day? He had been sick. He says, you're going to be okay. Isaiah said, I need a sign. How can I know this for certain? Which I think was problematic. Isaiah said, This shall be a sign for you from the Lord, that the Lord will do the thing he has promised Shall the shadow go forward ten steps or go back ten steps? Hezekiah answered, It's an easy thing for the shadow to lengthen ten steps. Rather, let the shadow go back ten steps. And Isaiah the prophet called to God, and he brought the shadow back ten steps, by which it had gone down to the steps of Ahaz. How did this happen? It shows the power of God. He created the universe. He created the laws that govern the universe. And he can change those laws when he decides to do so. Our God is a God of all power. And again, this work is a work that only God can do. Only God can do the things that we read about in the scriptures. His power displayed again and again and again to his people. So our God is a God who is sovereign over all things. Again, he displays his power in the world. But there is one way in particular that God has displayed his power, and that is in redemption. That's what Paul is focused about here, focused on here in this text. God's work of redemption 
and how that displays the great power of God. And we ask this, uh, who else could have done this? And the answer is no one. No one else could have done this. Uh, the exceeding greatness of his power, Ephesians chapter 3 and verse 19, we read this. And to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that we may be filled with all the fullness of God. Going back to verse 13, it is incomprehensible, the love of God. It was the point of this reading, this text. God's love goes beyond comprehension. God's love goes beyond understanding. God's power goes beyond our ability to grasp it either. As the apostle says here, that uh, this uh, power of God is an immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe. It cannot be, me- it cannot be measured. It is beyond that. And there's an emphasis upon the energy used here as the apostles laboring to undergo, present to us, display to us God's great power in the work of redemption. There are three different words used here by the apostle as he puts a phrase upon phrase to indicate the power of God in redemption. The first place, um, Paul, as he describes this, if I may backtrack a little bit, he has trouble describing it, and I think that for three reasons. One is Paul is a human being. We cannot comprehend God completely, can we? It's a wonder we can comprehend as much of him as we do. So another reason is that Paul was a sinful man, limited in understanding, just as we are. And don't, don't make the mistake of trying to reason out God's providence and he's trying to give you some kind of special message. God didn't work that way. What he does is close some doors and open other doors, but don't look for some kind of secret meaning that God might have in some bit of providence. You'll drive yourself crazy. You'll be trying to figure out everything that happens to you as you look for some kind of special message in the workings of God. Uh, It is not healthy to do that, not by any means. Paul, again, was a sinful man limited in his understanding. And the third thing is he is describing God's power in his connection to the work of Christ as a redeemer. That's what he's dealing with here in this text. Listen to it again. And what is the immeasurable greatness of the power toward us who believe? according to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places. The first word that Paul uses here to describe God's power is dunameos. Dynamite comes from this word. Uh, the word is to mean, uh, basically means force, especially when it's used in connection with the miracle. What has to happen for a miracle to take place Well, the laws of nature have to be suspended. What happened when Jesus turned the water into wine? Water doesn't turn into wine. That doesn't happen. Unless it is a miracle. And the laws of nature are suspended. And so Jesus was able to turn wine, water into wine. The next word is energeo. Energy. Of course, uh, you can tell energy comes from that. It means efficiency, strong, uh, and laboring. Carthos is the next word, which means dominion and might. So Paul here is using, again, word on top of word on top of word to describe the great power of God. And I don't think that we are to look at this and conclude that each of these synonyms represents some different nuance of God's power. 
I don't think that's his point here. And so that the preacher has to look at each one of these and bring out the secret meaning of the word or bring out what Paul is saying here uh, and spend uh, time trying to figure that out, that we don't, don't need to do that. His intention is simply to show us God's power. That's what Paul is doing here. And this power is not universally acknowledged in the world. Here's a situation where Paul recognizes the power of God. Paul desires these Christians to recognize the power of God, particularly as displayed in their redemption, their salvation. But notice what he says here. It is for those who are Christians, those who are brethren, those who are in Christ Jesus, that they may know this power. And so it is not that non-believers can see the great power of God. They don't believe the gospel. Some non-believers don't believe God exists. And if God doesn't exist, he certainly by no means has any power. He simply is a figment of imagination. Remember what I said last week in John Lennon's song, God. God is a concept by which you measure our pain. That was Lennon's view, at least in that song of God, a concept by which you measure our pain. That's the pagan world that thinks such a thing as that. For as believers, we think that God is personal. We think that God is loving. We think that God is sovereign. We think that God is kind. And that he shows that particularly through the redemption of his people. That we have salvation. That means that you and I do not have to be afraid of going to hell. That's a benefit, is it not? You can face death calmly. That's not to say we will. Death is the great mysterious force. It's not, was it? And to Hamlet's soliloquy, the undiscovered country, the land from which no one returns. It's the great unknown. I love this, the line in the hymn, Be near when I am dying, O show thy cross to me. That we may close our eyes in confidence and close our eyes courageously. Uh, so as believers, we recognize this truth, but the world does not. We should not be discouraged by that. We should not be in any way depressed by that fact. Their opinion does not change God's power. Their opinion does not change what God will do. Their opinion cannot force God into a situation that he cannot handle. Uh, He is sovereign over all things. And we should see God's great power displayed in the Lord Jesus Christ. There was never a moment, I think, in the history of the world when God displayed his power in such a magnificent way when the dead man came back to life. Remember what Paul says in Romans. The entire creation is groaning as a woman in childbirth. The entire creation was affected by the fall. And so we see that again and again. We see that in the news we see that in our lives, the influence of the fall, the effect of the fall. We see it and hear about uh, uh, Jeremy Smith's wife. Tragic. We are under the influence of sin and the fall in this world. We see God's great power, which undoes the fall, if you will. As Christ rose from the dead, having victory over sin and over death, as Christ has promised to come back again and raise the dead back to life. That's power. Our God is not weak. Our God is not ineffective. Our God is all-powerful. Paul wants these Christians to understand that, and we need to embrace that as well.
So Paul points out the great power of God culminates in two actions in the verse that we have here before us this morning. The first one is the resurrection of the dead. Where are those people of the past who had these um, notions about God and they had a following? Jim Jones. Everybody knows who Jim Jones was, right? Where is he? He's dead. Every spiritual leader in the history of the world that started some kind of religion, they're all dead. They have come under the judgment of God. And they're dead. And so many of them, their efforts have come to nothing. But where is our God? Where is Christ? The uniqueness of Christianity is this, that the founder of Christianity, the Lord of Christianity, is alive. Death cannot keep his prey, it says in the hymn. He's alive. As the old song used to go, because he lives, I can face tomorrow. Because he lives, I can have courage. All these people with all these false notions and all these false doctrines are in the grave. And their efforts eventually came to nothing. That is not true with our religion. Christ is alive. Not only is he alive, Christ is ruling over the entirety of the universe. Romans 1, 1 through 4, Paul, a servant of Christ, Jesus called by an apostle set apart for the gospel, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son, whom he descended, who was descended from David according to the flesh and declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by the resurrection of the dead. The resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead was God vilifying, was God giving his approval of, was God proving the words of Christ were true? Proven to be the Son of God, declared to be the Son of God by the resurrection from the dead. Had Jesus stayed dead, there would be no church today. Do you believe that? Do you believe that Christ had stayed in the grave, there would be a church today? There wouldn't be. Remember, the disciples were hiding. They were afraid, and they went back to fishing. There would be no church today had Christ stayed in the grave dead. But because he was resurrected from the dead, and because he empowers his church, proved to be the Son of God by the resurrection, by the resurrection of the dead, his church is alive because our God is alive. Our Founder is alive. Our Savior is alive, ruling over the universe in that position of high power. Well, the second act that Paul mentions here is the great display of God's power is the ascension of the Lord Jesus Christ. As it says here again in the text, uh, And he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places far above all rule and authority and power and dominion. We discussed in Sunday school, was Christ elevation to the highest place of authority a gift, a reward for his faithfulness. I think it was. Because of his faithfulness, because of his going through with what God had called him to do, the Father had called him to do, because of going to the cross and being dead and resurrected, he now sits at the right hand of the majesty on high. It is a reward for Jesus, for his faithfulness. 
So here, this great work that Paul mentions here, the ascension of the Lord Jesus Christ to the right hand of God. And when we talk about the power of God in the resurrection of Jesus, the entirety of redemption demonstrates God's power, the entirety of it. Not just the resurrection of Christ. You think about the incarnation of Christ. You think about the power of Jesus displayed in his life by his miracles. You think about the promises of the Lord Jesus Christ, that he would come back and receive us to himself, that where he is, we may be also. There is power exerted in your conversion. There is power exerted, power of God exerted in your sanctification. Every improvement you make in your soul is by God's grace. You have responsibility. But every improvement, every bit of growth is because God has blessed. And God has caused you to grow in the knowledge of his son. He keeps us. That's another example of God's power. He keeps us. What does Jesus say? No one can pluck you out of my hand. I will raise you up on the last day. So the power of God seen in redemption includes all aspects of redemption. So you may say, yeah, well, so what? So what? I've heard it before. So what? Let me read this to you. 2 Corinthians four seventeen through 18. For the slight momentary affliction is preparing us for eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. And we look not to the things that are seen, but the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. We look for those things. How many of y'all know who Billy Bob Thornton is? Actor? Sing played? Well, doesn't matter. He made a statement. He lost a brother. I don't know how, but he made a statement about this. He said that he would be unhappy the rest of his life. There was no comfort. There was no hope. To me, that's the words of someone that doesn't know. I don't know. I have no idea what his claim is as far as religion or Christ. But I do know that when he made that statement, it was empty of hope. He said he would think about his brother every day and have no comfort whatsoever. On the other hand, Michael Berry, I don't care if you know who he is or not. <laughs> Michael Berry lost a brother, police officer, killed in the line of duty over in Orange, Texas. I think it was about a year ago. Michael Berry played the last portion of his brother's funeral, and I heard it now. You could hear the emotion in his voice as he was talking about this. After they finished, he did not come back on the radio. But they ended with amazing grace. Hope. The hope of seeing him again. That's the difference. That's the difference in believing what the Bible tells us here about the power of God effective to accomplish redemption. And the powerless God who can't do anything. There's that confidence we have and the hope that we have in the Lord Jesus Christ. Do you recognize this, I hope, from these few verses and what I've said this morning? Our God can do anything. There's nothing that you face that he can't help you handle. Nothing. 
He's not lacking in power. He's not lacking in wisdom. He's not lacking in giving us hope. He can do everything. And he loves us more than we can ever think or imagine. I think more than we'll ever know, actually. In heaven, we'll have a much fuller revelation. We will not exhaust our knowledge of God. Have a fuller and a perfect revelation, but by no means an exhaustive revelation of the Lord. Our God is a God who has worked redemption. Do you know him? Do you know and trust the Lord Jesus Christ? If you do, these things are true about you. You have an inheritance. You have hope. When the great Christ has ascended on high and he intercedes for you. But if you don't trust Christ, these promises are not yours. But all you have to do is come and embrace Christ as he has offered in the Gospels. If you're not a believer, I'd urge you to faith. Christ receives everyone that comes to him in sincerity. Let's pray.